We are back here for another lovely episode of the Building Equity Podcast. And if you you obviously missed what happened prior, but we're all getting cozy. We're all having a good time. James Schlimmer here, Chief Executive Officer of Equity Real Estate Service. And I'm with Mr. John Bowens, as always. How are you, sir? I am awesome, James. Really excited. Actually, I'm ready to just jump right into today's program. I know our viewers, and we have limited time with BJ here, yep. who's our, our special real estate professional guest. We've got BJ Cottrell from Cottrell Tax and Accounting. We are making good on our promise for what we wanted with this podcast. We have a tax accountant here who specializes in working with real estate agents, specializes working with real estate investors. So, you know, we kind of touched on this with Jeff Grant, the attorney. If you can be proactive as you're starting your real estate investing career and sit with a tax accountant and figure out how should I do some stuff to make sure I'm not overpaying in some places or the record keeping, which I know we're going to go into, this is what we're here for. So, BJ, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, John Bowens loves his segments, BJ. So right. before we get into the nit and gritty, we got to talk about real estate news you care about. And as always, it's brought to you by IRA Title Pro. Do you know anybody that buys and sells real estate with their IRA, John? A lot. You know a lot of folks that do a it. A lot. Go figure. Tell me more. Well, you know what they should do on their mm-hmm. next real estate transaction is that they should try closing with IRA Title Pro. They're going to enjoy a full-service title company that focuses exclusively on IRA real estate transactions. They can enjoy faster close times, on average 11 days faster than a traditional local title company. Experienced closing team that also specializes in the fractional IRA interest in property. Single point of contact, awesome proactive communication, and competitive closing fees. If you want to know more, visit IRATitlePro.com. That was our ad, BJ. Yeah, We got sponsors. See the show notes. Go go to the show notes for more detail. But let's also bring up the news. So one of the things that I saw here, this is from Simon Bowler, Seeking Alpha, the state of REITs. And essentially what they're saying is that January is a brutal month for nearly all asset classes, including the REIT sector. What's a REIT? So it's a real estate investment trust. And my question is, why should a entry-level real estate investor care? I can tell you why I care, because I invest in them myself. I'm so excited about this build for rent space but mm-hmm. I'm not a builder. I don't have a property management company and I can't go build 200 homes. So how can I try to take advantage of that? Well, I'm using my IRA to invest in some of the popular build for rent REITs that are out there. And I know you can talk on this too, but there's, build mm-hmm. for, there's REITs for storage. There's REITs for uh, assisted living facilities. They're out mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah, and you know, I also say, James, that there are publicly traded real estate investment trusts. Yep. So you know, you can set up any brokerage account, open an IRA, set up your account, and you can, with a few clicks of a mouse, you can buy a publicly traded REIT. It's very easy to go in and out. But there are also private real estate investment trusts. So you can do your due diligence there. There's a lot of these crowdfunding platforms. Yep. Uh, some of them offer just traditional real estate private placement, yep. real estate partnership investments. But then there are also some that offer private real estate investment trusts. So it's not tied or, if you will, as correlated to the traditional financial markets. And that's why some people want to invest in the the private REIT marketplace versus the public REIT marketplace. You can have greater returns, but there's also maybe greater risk because there's not so much information publicly disclosed. Potentially. Uh, But keep in mind when you're investing in private REITs, what you lose is the liquidity factor. So generally speaking, you're not going to be able to put an order request in and trade that private REIT within just a few moments like you can a publicly traded REIT. Yep. So 
definitely we could have a whole show on oh, investing without REITs, question. but I'm glad you brought it up, James, because it can be a great way for a brand new real estate investor to invest in real estate in a very passive way. Now, sure. we talk about private lending on this show. We talk about owning rentals by investing through a turnkey type operator. Uh, we talk about a lot of those different types of things, but I'm glad you brought up REITs, James, because it is a good way for an investor to start doing some due diligence on different specific types of asset classes within the real estate sector, whether it's storage yep. or single family rentals or investing in uh, shopping centers or whatever it is that someone may have a specific interest in. And as it relates to IRAs very quickly, what you'll find is that real estate investment trusts are structured differently from a tax perspective than if you invest in a publicly traded stock. So for example, if I buy publicly traded shares of Microsoft or IBM or Sherwin-Williams, I get a dividend. Uh, well, in most cases, I get a dividend. And that dividend is taxed at dividend tax rates. Whereas with a real estate investment trust, my dividends are subject to ordinary income tax rates. And so for somebody that might have a higher ordinary income tax rate versus a dividend tax rate, it might be more beneficial to them to actually use an IRA or a self-directed IRA to invest in these types of offerings. I know that's more BJ's area. It's so a great segue, wanna... though, when we start talking about tax savings. And we're here with BJ Cottrell from Cottrell Tax and Accounting in the state of Florida. Right. And BJ, first question, here's a softball for you. So if I'm brand new getting into real estate, why would I? And I know like I'm committed. We've talked about some of the news before, like, hey, if you know, Russia is going to invade Ukraine, you know, there's the possibility the markets could fall. Uh, John's used his uncle's example, I think, where the stock market tanked in March of 2020 and he 15 percent down. Sure. But yet in real estate, you're kind of insulated from that. People still paid their rents. Right. So if I'm stepping foot and I have the money and I want to start real estate investing, why does it make sense for me to sit down with somebody like you first and just prepare? Like what, could, yep. what would that conversation be like? Sure. Well, let me take a step back too. I love the REIT thing. I just want to piggyback just a little bit on that because it is one of the great ways to be passive in this market, right? Everything else we're about to talk with is more being active, right? Yep. We're going to actually go find the house. We're going to buy it. We're going to do all that. With the REITs, it does give you the ability to be passive. And especially with these self-directed IRAs, it's one of the biggest hurdles to get over is it being passive. So it is a really good thing. And we've seen a lot of people use it within these self-directed IRAs. I think we'll end up doing a whole show on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think you guys definitely should. Um, because I think it gets people's, uh, you know, they can get that taste. Right? It's easy. Yeah, it is. It's an easy way to break into the market. But from a standpoint of buying properties and doing it for investment or rentals, uh, um, you know, the first thing I always suggest is to sit down with a professional. Look, I, I, I always tell people that whatever it's going to cost you to meet with that professional, you'll probably save in the first year times two, times three, because you don't know what you don't know. Sure. Right? And that's what we run into all the time. I get people all the time that come into my office, and I just want, I just wish we could go back in time three years, because it could be anywhere from, you know, $2,000 worth of savings to $20,000, $30,000 worth of savings. Um, and normally, you can't go backwards, right? Yeah. You, gotta, you can do it from that point on, and, and good on them for finally coming in and getting the right advice. But at that point in time, it's a, normally too late to go back. So if we're talking about the average person um, that comes into my office and sits down and says, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing in real estate. Um, the first question I have is, what's the time frame you're holding the property? 
right? That's the first thing we gotta know. Are we doing short-term rentals? Are we doing long-term rentals? Are we doing flipping? What are we doing along those So lines? let's plug this too, because if this is your first time watching the Building Equity Podcast, you can go back and look. We sat with Jeff Grant, Florida mm-hmm. real estate attorney, and he brought up the same exact point. So from an asset protection standpoint, it's a different world if you're gonna be doing vacation rentals for this property compared to Mm -hmm. what John does, which is holds these properties and gets long-term cash flow from these renters. Mm -hmm. And what you're kind of saying is you're gonna ask the same questions. Same question. Same question. So, and and, and that's one of the things you wanna think through what you're wanting to do too, right? Because everyone has different uh, niche markets, right? And under, and can do things better than others. Certain people don't have the time to do short-term rentals, right? It's, there's a lot more work that goes into that or could be more work that goes into that. So that is the first thing we want to talk about is what is your objective for the property and how, how long are you planning on holding it? Okay. So, so Jeff talked about, and we're going to bring Jeff where we're all four of us are going to be yep. together. Yep. That's going to be our, our next episode. Okay. We, we call In this that three- the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, our three-part series here. Yeah, so yeah. really excited about this. So Jeff explained, okay, if I'm buying and holding properties, I'm going to have an LLC. Mm-hmm. And when we bring them back, we'll touch on that a little bit more in terms of setting up multiple LLCs. But we have an LLC, and that is a pass-through entity. Correct. Uh, so can you tell our viewers, for buy and hold transactions specifically, an sure. LLC pass-through, what does pass-through mean? Just break it down for us from a tax perspective, how rental properties operate. So the way this works is that, um, and it's it's not just uh, rentals, it's also investment, right? Uh, Lots, for example, right? If I'm buying a lot and holding it for five years. Anything when it comes to real estate for the most part, and there's exceptions to pretty much every rule with the IRS, but for the most part, we want it taxed at the individual level. Okay. Okay. That's where we get our best tax. I'm writing it down. So, and the reason why we get our best tax treatment there is because of capital gains rates. Yeah. Right. And then there's also special rules for real estate on your personal tax return. For example, I'm able to take 25 up to $25,000 of losses from my rental to offset ordinary income. Okay? I can't do that with other passive activities because passive losses can only be offset by passive gains. But there's a special rule for people who own investment properties that can do up to 25. Now, it's subject to limits. If you make too much money, it phases out. And some other things, there's some rules that if you're a real estate agent, you can be in the business and you can be a real estate professional. And then you get to keep that $25,000 exclusion past the phase out periods and some stuff like that. But nevertheless, the point behind it is we always want it to go at the individual level. So when Jeff, the attorney, was talking about having an LLC or even a partnership, right? The LLC, and let me take a quick moment to talk about that. There's two parts you've got to think of when you're thinking about a business or an entity. The first one is the legal structure, okay? And that's Jeff's world. That's where you have LLCs, INCs, corps, and each state has their own certain designations and all of that deals with the legal structure the liability protection the all that fun stuff but then each one of those entities normally have a default and a couple different options on how they're taxed by the irs yep so we like llc's and i think you'll probably find most attorneys and well especially attorneys now and definitely tax professionals like llc's because they're the most flexible An LLC can be taxed as a single member LLC, which is disregarded. If there's two or more members, the default is to be a partnership, 
which is a pass-through entity. And then we also have the S corporations, which are pass-through entities as well. And so to kind of answer your question here, pass-through basically means that we may file a separate tax return for that entity, but all the profits or all the income flows through to your personal tax return and you pay, you pay the taxes at that personal level, which is again, what we want. We wanna pay it at the personal level because that's where we get the best tax treatment. So in other words, no corporate tax, no corporate tax income passes through the LLC to our own individual tax return. Now you had talked about the $25,000 in losses. Mm -hmm. And so that, of course, is well known amongst real estate investors, even people that are not active real estate investors, but they're, they're more, call it, very passive. You know, I'm thinking um, higher net worth individuals, um, doctors, I see this very frequently, physicians who have lots of money uh, that's just sitting on the sidelines, they don't want to put it in the stock market, and they want to invest in real estate, and they can actually take advantage of some of these losses, even investing through, like, real estate investor partnerships. Now, let me not get too far ahead of my skis. Let, mm -hmm. me, let me tease out a little bit more on this $25,000 in losses. I'm thinking if I'm a brand new real estate investor, why, why would I invest in real estate if I have $25,000 in losses? Yeah, it sounds like a can, bad deal. Yeah, can, you, can you actually talk about that, Absolutely. quantifying it from like yeah. an actual dollar perspective sure. and profit perspective? So, so the major thing is depreciation, okay? And so when I explain depreciation, it goes something like this. Let's say, for example, I buy a house for $275,000, yep. okay? The IRS requires me. I don't even have this choice. I have to depreciate that property every year. Okay. You're not, are and you living in the property? You're not living in, this no, is an investment this is, property. This is a rental property. Okay. And, or even an investment as well. Um, anytime I buy real property, whether, you know, even small businesses, right? If I buy a computer, I'm technically supposed to depreciate that over the life of that, uh, of that product or uh, of that item. And so with real estate, it's 27 and a half years. I depreciate real estate property, real property over 27 and a half years. Yep. Commercial's a little different, but let's call it personal rental, okay? So personal rental, I do that over 27 and a half years. So that means every year, if I bought a $275,000 house, every year I have to take $10,000 in depreciation. And that depreciation goes on my tax return as an expense. Okay, it reduces my basis, okay, which is kind of, you know, you got the carrot and then you got the stick sure. here, right? The carrot is that I get to write off $10,000 to offset my rental income that I received yep. or even offset ordinary income from my W-2 job or whatever else that I have. Because it's passing through to you because individually. Because it's passing through to my individual tax return up to that $25,000 limit. But what happens is it reduces the value or the basis of my property. So I use an example with that whole 275,000. Let's say that I kept it for seven years, okay? I kept the property for seven years. Well, over those seven years, every year I got to take $10,000 of losses. Yep. So, but now at the end, let's say I sell it for $400,000. Well, in my mind, simple math says I bought it for 275, I'm selling it for 400,000, so I only have $125,000 gain. Problem is, is that we took $70,000 yep. in expenses, which went to ordinary income and helped us out on our tax returns during that whole time. And then when I go to sell, now I only have a basis of 200 and I'm selling it for 400. So instead of 125 of a gain, I have $200,000 gain. So that's the way depreciation works. And to follow that into kind of to answer your question, on paper, real estate can still cash flow 
but show a tax loss because of depreciation and other items. So you kind of, for lack of better words, can almost double dip with rentals, and we love them because of that. On paper, you can show a loss, and you can take losses in the current year, but in reality, you can still be cash flowing that property and building equity. So the big recommendation here, real quick, is to take the little toggle switch. I don't know if you're driving down the road and you're listening to this on podcast or whatever, but you can rewind and you can go back and you can listen to this and just play the numbers. Because if this is your first time hearing this, it is confusing. It if is. you're doing this every single day, it's still confusing. But the biggest thing I think, and, and I know, John, you preach this, is have a great team that you're working with. So you can call up a BJ Cottrell and BJ knows who you are and says, I know your strategy is sure. X, Y, Z. This is what we're doing. If you're going to try to figure this out on yourself, you're not treating this like a business, right? And right. the reason why you want to listen to everything BJ just said, rewind it, is because this is what separates people that are serious and the folks that are going to have problems, sure. right? So I'm appreciative of that, yep. that you brought that up. And, you know, on that same note, we're treating, again, like we talked about in the segment with Jeff, and I'm sure we'll get into this even more, is we're treating our investments like a real estate business. And we talked about in the last show about how when we present ourselves to our, not tenants, but our residents, right? We always like to call them residents, not tenants. When we present ourselves, we're the property manager. Now, one thing that I want to switch to quickly and pivot here is bookkeeping and record keeping. Yep. So one of the things that I see frequently amongst real estate investors, and, and I learned this in the very beginning days, is managing my rentals out of a shoebox is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, when I show up to my, my accountant or CPA, when if I show up to, to BJ's office with a shoebox full of receipts, he's not going to be very happy, and he's probably going to charge me a lot gonna more. going to charge you it. a lot more. And so <laughs> you have to set up, when you own rental properties, you have to set up a system to catalog your receipts have a ledger, right? Have systems, and there's software that you can subscribe to that does this. Yep. And, and, and it's, sure. it's incredibly affordable now. Sure. Much more affordable than it was years ago. Can so, you comment on that? Yeah, so our suggestion is this. First of all, if you're doing a rental, and I'm sure you guys uh, talked about this with the legal, uh, with Jeff, is you want to have some sort of entity set up, right? I always suggest that. Um, and normally it's a single member LLC or a husband wife single member LLC. Sometimes it's a partnership depending on the circumstances, but you want something set up. When you do that, we normally suggest just to get an EIN number along with that and get a separate bank account. All right, BJ, real quick. So you mentioned EIN number. Can you explain to a brand new real estate investor what is an EIN number? Sure. So an EIN number is kind of like a social security number for your business. Okay. okay? Um, when you set up single member LLCs, you're not required to get this, but we strongly suggest that you do it anyways. And what that does is that gives you a separate number and keeps things separate. And then we strongly suggest to go open up a separate bank account as well with that EIN number. Yep. Um, for us, and again, I'm sure you talked with Jeff about legal, you know, when you commingle funds, when you have everything mixed together, that's just one way that an attorney, heaven forbid someone slips, falls on your property, can go and kind of break that corporate veil. And, so, and make it so you're individually liable for Correct, yep. correct. It's not saying it would happen, but it's it now could. opened the door for that to be the possibility. So from a legal standpoint, you want to, but from our standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, 
we really like and really suggest having that separate bank account. And so, especially if you only have one at this time and you're getting started, definitely set up a separate bank account, maybe get a separate credit card um, for it, and then run everything for that rental property through that one bank account and that one credit card. Um, because we see all the time people lose expenses and they lose opportunities to save money on taxes just because they're not organized. Or, I'll take it another step, you have a husband and wife that buy rental property and the wife goes and buys something but doesn't tell the husband who does more of the bookkeeping or vice versa. The wife's doing the bookkeeping and the husband buys something. So we love the fact that if you have a bank account and even a separate credit card, if they use that credit card, it's eventually going to get grabbed and it's not going to be mixed in with all my personal stuff and everything else. So you'll know you get it on the tax return. You know you can do it. And then just as a side note, we always tell our clients, whether it's a small business or a rental, keep all your receipts. Don't work off of them, right? Because you have your credit card and your bank statements. That's yep. where you're going to pull all your data. But have a box that you put all your receipts in, your personal receipts, your business receipts, your, your rental receipts, put everything in there. Don't organize it, don't touch it, don't think about it, but have it available because if you, I use an example for my small business owners. If I, you know, if I went to Best Buy and I have a $500 charge on my credit card, I know I'm gonna get that on my tax return, but the IRS is gonna wanna see that receipt to see if I bought a laptop or I bought an Xbox. Yep. And so we've gotta be able to prove that. But don't organize it. I see people spend hours and hours trying to organize it. I just don't think it's necessary. Use your credit card and bank I think cards. a really good point, we talked about this either off the air or another show, but you mentioned off the cuff, because we were talking about the lumber prices, how they're through the roof, right? right? It's so easy to go by that fence that you did and you bought too much wood and you just, oh, let me just pull out the debit card and John mm. Bowen's individually paid for it because it's just what you're used to. And that was 14 grand, let's just say, right? And now you get all the way to the end of the year, but that was really for your investment property. And to your point, you miss that write-off, right? And even, even better yet, you know, a couple kind of, I guess I'll call them pro tips, like we've been sharing sure. on these segments. And I can share our experience. So we have a system, my wife and I, and how we execute on managing our rental properties. Um, I'm typically handling most of the expenses, paying for the utilities, um, repairs, paying contractors, that's that's my piece of the puzzle. And if I need to go and buy a refrigerator, for example, at Home Depot, I have a Home Depot Pro account. I have our business checking account cards loaded into that system mm -hmm. already. And most big box stores have these types of applications. Of so when I go and I buy a refrigerator or whatever I'm purchasing at one of those stores, I get a receipt emailed directly to me. If I buy something where it's a physical receipt, I immediately use a cam scanner or other type of PDF scan, uh, scan uh, application on my phone. I immediately scan that receipt because I know if I don't scan it immediately before I even step foot out the door that I'll probably forget to do it or lose the I receipt. I forget all the time, yeah. So mm -hmm. I do that and then I email that over to my wife who handles all this. She mm -hmm. logs that receipt. She enters that expense into our system of records that we have set up so that way we make sure that when we're ready to file our tax return we can give our cpa who handles our taxes we can give them a nice clean package with everything that they need in there he'd be your yep. dream dream client right yeah well look what i explain is the bare minimum right the, mm -hmm. the, the having a bank a separate bank account and credit card that I feel like is the bare minimum. The next one is a lot of people use Excel and different programs like mm -hmm. they've had. You wanna use what works best for you because 
you've got to stay on it, right? Yep. It's consistency. It's not, you know, having the best product in the world, just doing it over and over again. And then there's things like QuickBooks, right? QuickBooks Online nowadays, it's 20 bucks for it. It will download all the information from your bank account, all the information from your credit card. You can even create rules, right? You can create a rule that says every single time you see Home Depot, it knows move it, it into yeah. materials and you never have to code that again. It just automatically happens in the background. And if you really want to get into kind of really tracking, it all depends on how much you want to track your expenses and stuff for the rentals. And if you have multiple, uh, QuickBooks even has the ability of doing what's called classes. And so if you're a real estate investor that have like 10 properties, you can class them out so that you can get a profit and loss and shows every single one right next to each other as well as a total. I'm really gr glad you're bringing that up, BJ, because I'm gonna shift for a moment to talk about when you go to a bank to get loans to buy more properties. So now we're getting into scaling our rental mm -hmm. business. Sure. Right, you can't scale your business just off of spreadsheets and, and some kind of, you know, like a Google Drive, Yep. right? So BJ is talking about actually building out a system of records like using a QuickBooks, because now you can pull a true P&L, yep. and when you go to your bank to get more loans, to buy more rental properties, they're likely gonna start asking for this this type of thing. And they will, they're, they're more and more asking, look, the, all the banks are CYAing themselves, right? And mm -hmm. so they're asking for a P&L. And nowadays, they're not just asking for a P&L, they're asking for a P&L signed by your CPA, right? Mm, and right. you're seeing more and more of that. And so another reason why, if you're looking to do multiple someday and scale, you definitely need a tax professional because otherwise nobody's gonna sign that unless they have a relationship with you. So you wanna build a relationship with someone that can help you also be around for that, but also these P&L systems and stuff. Or for us, even if it is in Excel, we'll dump it into a QuickBooks, create the P&L for our clients and things like that as well. Can I go back here too, because you mentioned earlier, one of the first questions you're gonna ask is, what are you gonna do with these properties? Mm -hmm. So, okay, we've set up the LLC, we come to you, uh, we haven't really touched on, well, you, you can do an S-Core, but you could do a C-Core. What, what makes sense for me? But that's a second question. Sure. Why does it matter? Why do you care what I'm going to do with it? Let's say I'm going to do short term. Sure. So from an entity structure or what I would suggest, um, normally we suggest, I'd say 95% of the time, is a single member LLC or husband-wife single LLC. Easiest way of doing it. There's no extra cost, none of my extra fees. It's really just the $150, at least in the state of Florida, it's actually 138, but uh, that you have to pay each year yep. to keep it operating, okay? So it's the simplest. Now, if you have two owners that aren't husband and wife, if me and you were buying a yep. property together, now we've got to do a partnership, okay? We don't have a choice. We'd do an LLC, but it'd be taxed as a partnership and it would have that second uh, tax return that would have to be filed. Um, but the reason why I'm asking about short-term and long-term is there's other taxes out there besides federal IRS, right? So obviously in the state of Florida, if you have short-term rental defined as six months or less, you have to pay sales tax, okay? So you have the state sales tax at 6%. Just like a hotel, right? Well, so, so the first one's the state tax, but yes, they, like the hotel. Then the second one, we actually call the hotel tax. It's actually the tourist tax, but each county especially in Florida, has a tourist tax. I know in Collier County, um, you know, it's six or 7% in most of the counties anyways. So that's another 12 to 13% that you've got to do. And it's not necessarily your tax, 
right? That's the, that's the beauty of it, at least for the landlord, right? Is it's not your tax, really. You're required to withhold it and pay it, though. So you've got to make sure you know that so that on your invoices for the short term, you can actually charge that tax, collect it, and then remit it to the county and the state. What I love, John, too, is if anybody is watching this, you can go back and you're hearing so much congruency between Jeff with the asset protection mm -hmm. and here, BJ here, and how easy it is to be like, oh, what does this really matter? But I'm a real estate investor. I'm going out there and you're leaving, not leaving 13%, but you're liable for that mm -hmm. month over month over month. And you could really just make sure your tenant pays it by crafting your invoice the correct way so they pay every single month the right way. Well, the interesting thing about it too is the fact that with today's technology, with VRBO, with all that, which actually VRBO is a great thing because it actually will charge most of these for you. Heck, they even file a lot of these taxes for mm -hmm. you. Um, but if you're not using a VRBO, you definitely wanna make sure it's on there. But my point behind it is with the way technology is, they'll find you. Right? It's not the days where I did short-term rentals and I put a sign in my yard and the county would never know and yep. it was just kind of forgotten. Now, there's people that their, own their only job is finding short-term rentals sure. and making sure that they've registered and that they're paying these extra taxes. Um, and again, it's a simple thing. You're, you're basically just tacking it on to your invoice to the actual uh, renter. And so it... it, it it's just knowing, again, what you don't know, you don't know. So we, that's, that's more the first reason why with the short term to figure it out. Outside of that, those two other taxes, from the IRS standpoint, from the federal government standpoint, they're taxed the same. Whether you, whether you do short-term rentals or you do a full-year rental, they're still taxed the same from the IRS standpoint. Okay. So what if I come to you? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, what I wanted to, to bring, so Jeff's going to be coming on the next show, mm -hmm. and I should mention to all of our viewers, if you have questions in preparation for that next show for Jeff and BJ, you can ask your questions down below. You'll see some show comments in there as well, so Sweet. ask your questions. We'll get as many of those answered as we can when we have BJ sure. and, and Jeff back together. Um, back to you. I can talk to you for hours about yeah, yep. this, but it's, so what, okay, now I want to, I want to flip. Okay. I want to flip homes. What's that conversation like? So that's a completely different conversation. And this one is a little technical. So I've got to dive in here a little bit. So when I, as an individual, again, we always want to own these eventually individually, right? Or get taxed at an individual, whether it's a partnership, whether it's a LLC, we want it to flow through that pass through and come down to the individual level. The IRS gives me the ability to make investments. Okay, I can make investments on certain things. And when that money comes back, it gets treated a little bit better than, let's say, a W-2 wage, right, which is subject to Social Security, Medicare and ordinary tax rates. And depending on how much you make and, you know, if you have kids married, it's all, you know, whatever bracket you're in. Sure. So. We love investment being considered an investment income because not only does it not subject to Social Security and Medicare, but it's also got long-term capital gains treatment, okay? And long-term capital gains is basically, um, eh, it's roughly 15%, but it can even be better than that. So really what it is, is it's the first $40,000 as it stands right now, rough math, is at 0%. Okay, so hypothetically, you're a real estate investor, right? And that's all you do. And you have zero income from other sources and you sell a property and you have a, a $75,000 gain in that property. 
and you have no other income and you're fair filing married filing joint, right? Meaning you and your spouse, you each get 40,000, you're gonna pay $0 in tax. Because the first $40,000 for each person is free. The problem is most of us do have W-2 jobs, yep. right? Yep. So if I make $50,000 and then I have $10,000 of capital gains, that first 40,000 is used up on my W-2 income. So yep. I've made over 40, now I'm into the 15% tax bracket. And then it actually goes to 20%. Let's say, you know, it's, it's, it's over 400. For married, filing, joint versus single, there's some different rates, but a little over 400, um, it, it turns into 20% and then it stays at 20%. So when I make you know two hundred thousand dollars W two income as a single person, I could be paying thirty three percent. Exactly. But if I sell a property or an investment that's over a year, now I can get fifteen percent capital gains treatment on it, which is a gigantic difference in what you pay in taxes. Why is that important? This is the reason why. When I buy a property to flip, I want it to be considered an investment. Okay, if it's considered an investment, if the intent is investment, then I can get those special rates of 15% and everything else. The problem is, is that there are people like myself that may buy the, you know, the house every once in a blue moon and flip it and turn it around. And then there's people like this gentleman right here who may buy three or four in a year. And this is what he does for a living. Or maybe somebody else who they are buying and flipping properties. And it's called dealing. It, it's in the business of flipping. And when the IRS categor categorizes you as being in the business of flipping or a dealer, now that income is ordinary income. Now that income is subject to self-employment tax of 15.3% on top of the ordinary. So we try to find a way to keep us in the investment category from the IRS and not the dealing category. And is that, so that conversation, and this is gold. I mean, this is literally everything that, you know, we talked about, hey, I want to, we want to do this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's for this. This is gold. So if I'm proactive and I come to you because I'm opening the door and starting my real estate mm -hmm. investing career, would you say, hey, how many of these do you want to do per year? Would that kind of like is the because I imagine the IRS code is is vague. It's it's extremely vague and, right? and frustratingly vague, to be quite honest with you. Um, unfortunately, the only thing we can do is we can look at court cases. Right. And see what the judge decided and what his remarks were to try to fit, glean kind of where are they going with this? Yep. What are the key things? I can tell you there's a lot, but I can tell you, number one, do you have other source income? Right. If you yep. have a W-2 job, there's a much better chance that you're going to be considered an investor and not be in the business of because you have another job. Right. So that's the first one. Um, the other one is the amount that you do in a year. Right. Or uh, if you did one a year you'd probably be okay. Oh, the duration you hold it, right? If you held every one for over a year before you flipped it, you'd probably never be considered a dealer either. At my firm, when I'm talking to my clients, for me, that safe harbor is kind of never having more than one going on at a time. Because in that scenario, I can explain to the artist, look, they're, they're, they're trying to invest, they're trying to make money. So when they got done with this one and they now have the cash, they went and got another one. But if they have two or three going on at the same time, now it looks a lot more like I'm in the business, that this is my way of really earning my living versus my way of investing and increasing my wealth. So I know for what's the worst, real quick, what's the worst case scenario? 
you know, I'm paying taxes. You know, I, I, I have people bring this up all the time, right? And they're like, well, I'm paying all this money in taxes. Well, you're making a lot of money, right? Sure. You know, and the reality is, is when you start making a lot of money, you got to pay you money. Pay you got to pay taxes. Yep. Well, and, uh, <laughs> so. and there's a strategy behind it too, right? And, and, and I'll tell you what strategy is because I'm sure there's a lot of people that have heard about it. And it's S-Corporation. Right? The same strategy we use for small businesses, right? The same strategy I run for my own business is the same strategy that we use when people get to the point that they're considered dealers, right? They now have a true business. They have a income. And then we set up S corporations for them. They bring all the properties into the S corporation. And then at that point, we're able to write off all their expenses, their cell phone, their home internet. And just another side note, you know, a lot of my renters or my flippers want to try to find a way to write off their cell phone and their car and the this and that. And although it's technically okay, the more you do that, the more you're telling the IRS, I'm in the business of flipping houses, yep. right. right? And so you just gotta be a little careful with that. But um, S corporations gives us a great thing because if I'm in the business, remember we got, we're gonna get taxed twice, ordinary tax rate, and we're gonna get the Social Security and Medicare at 15% self-employment tax. So by setting up an S corporation, not only can we get all the expenses, the cell phones, the cars, the computers, the, all that type of stuff, we also can pay you a salary and drastically reduce the amount of self-employment that you can pay. And coming up in our next episode, we'll talk about LLCs versus S corps, and we'll bring in Jeff and actually describe for our viewers What's the difference? Can you just use an LLC and tax it differently? I'm sure, sure. BJ, you'll have some comments on that, but we'll we save that for the next episode. Yeah, they're absolutely yeah. gonna wanna do it. So listen, from a time standpoint, we are we're, we can sit with you for three, four more sure. hours. Did you have anything else you wanted to hit with BJ, or do you wanna kind of save it for bringing Jeff back on? Yeah, saving Jeff back on, saving for Jeff coming back on. Um, I'll, I'll say the reason why, for all of our viewers, why we went fast and we asked a lot of questions is because this is not cheap, right? <laughs> so we're bringing a professional in, as we do on a lot of our episodes, so that you guys can get education and content so that you can make good decisions. But of course, as we always say, speak to someone like BJ, speak to someone like Jeff. If you're not here in Florida, speak to your local professional because it's going to save you a lot of money in the long run. Well, you know, one of the problems is, is that you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of thing. Right? And I think that's why a lot of times you don't see some of the meat and potatoes out there is because what I'm talking about right now is very general, but it may work for you, Yep. but it could be the completely It won't work for, for John, you, yeah. Right? right. And, I, and, and so, so don't, don't, you know, I, you know, don't use this as your tax advice, right? Use it as a, now I know more, right? Now I'm more prepared, but still go see a professional because they'll be able to then start tailoring some of this advice to your needs and what you need to get done. So we're sitting here with BJ Cottrell from Cottrell Tax Accounting out of uh, Naples, Florida. We have another segment that we like to hit on our show, right. BJ, so be prepared. This is This Day in Real Estate Investing History. And as always, it's brought to you by Equity Trust. Unleash your inner real estate mogul. Discover your potential as an investor by maximizing the power and possibilities of buying and selling real estate with your retirement account. John, I don't know if you know this, but U.S. News calls them top seven IRA accounts for 2022. Did you know that? I think I did. You did know that. <laughs> Investopedia says best overall self-directed IRA company with $34 billion in assets under custody. Start the conversation today at trustetc.com. Now, here's the article. This is from the Kansas City Star, April 5th, 1905. Wow. BJ, right? And why I find this to be really cool, 
is this article is referencing the oldest real estate firm. And it says from 1905, it's saying, hey, 40 years ago in March of 1865, and if you like history like I do, 1865 is when the Civil War ended. It talks about a man from Atlanta. And this man from Atlanta, an enterprising Atlantan just returned from the war, possessing only a ragged gray uniform upon his back, established the first real estate and renting business ever organized in the world. Wow. And we have that article here on the show. What more would you ask for from a real estate investing podcast? It's incredible. So that's when landlording began, is what you're saying. I, I think it actually began a lot. More than likely it did, but at least we can reference this article, right? So once again, thank you, BJ Cottrell, for being here on the Building Equity Podcast. And John, I can't wait to get Jeff Grant on here with BJ and we continue this conversation. Let's get into that. Excellent. Thanks.